We are continuing on in our series called A Picture of God, and we are, or have been looking at like events and teachings in the life of Jesus, believing that when we see Jesus, we see the Father. That's what he told Thomas actually right after the passage that we're going to be in today, uh, and, that, and that we want to, to know more of what God looks like, what God is like, so we look continually to Jesus to get a clearer picture of God. So I want to ask a question to sort of set the stage a little bit this morning for where we're going. Uh, do you ever look around and, and find yourself thinking, this isn't the way that it's supposed to be? Like this, this shouldn't be like this. The world should be better than this. People should be better than this. You ever think that? You ever feel that? I mean, I do. I don't know if you're anything like me. I feel like, man, it shouldn't be like this. I wish justice and corruption would be dealt with. I wish that the pain in my life was less or not existent. I wish the temptation didn't so easily sway me. Just find myself thinking, man, I, I feel like life should be different than this. And like I said, I don't know if you're like me, but you're not alone in feeling that. Uh, and what I would argue is that behind those those wishes, those desires for a better world, for the world to be put to right, is, is really for a desire to see the enemy of God dealt with. The Bible calls him Satan, calls him the enemy, uh, to see the enemy of God actually made powerless, to see Satan stripped of his, his influence over mankind, and, and to see earth restored to its original design, to be in harmony with God, to go back into a, a place of peace and shalom and harmony with God, similar to what it was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, right? And so this is actually what Israel was supposed to be doing all along. This is why God called Abraham and God called Israel, was they were supposed to be living this out, loving God and loving others and bringing the shalom of God to earth. And the temple would be there and God's presence would be there and it would be like a garden-like existence. But because of their own sin, uh, we find Israel... In the first century, we find them in exile. We find them under the, 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 the thumb of Rome, ruled by them, and waiting for a rescuer to come who will then put the world to rights, as uh, N.T. Wright says, will put it, put it correctly, make it right again. And so John is recording for us in his gospel what it looks like in first century Palestine as Israel's waiting for this rescuer to come. And, and he records for us as Jesus heads into the last few days of his life on earth or before the crucifixion, he records for us that Jesus says two things that are pretty interesting, and, and, he, and he says these two things that are actually incredibly telling and powerfully linked, having to do with putting the world right. Jesus says that the hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So as Jesus is headed to the cross, he's saying that the hour's come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he also says that now is the time for judgment on this world, like it's going to be judged. Now is the time for the prince of this world, meaning the enemy of God. Now is the time for Satan, who will be driven out. So Satan's going to be driven out somehow by what is about to take place. He's saying that he would be glorified by what was about to happen and that he would be judging and overturning the power of Satan, the power of the enemy that corrupts the world by what was about to happen. He was indicating yet again that, that he was the one who was going to do battle with Satan and bring the shalom and glory of God to earth. So today we're going to be looking at, at how it is that Jesus shows us a picture of God setting the world to rights by becoming our servant king. That's sort of the idea is this servant king, Jesus. 
So we've been, if you've been here for a little while, we've been loosely following the chronology of Jesus' earthly life, right? We were back with his baptism. We looked at uh, his temptation in the wilderness. We looked at his interactions with Nicodemus and, and the woman at the well who he gives full life to. We looked at how he transforms people slowly, how he brings life to the humble. Then we looked at uh, John and James last week calling for authority. We looked at how he heals blind Bartimaeus, how he raises Lazarus from the dead. But he calls them to a new life, right? He's calling them to, to a new life that, that isn't about themselves anymore, that it's about serving God and serving others because he says that Jesus himself, even God himself, didn't come to be served, but to serve. Remember, Jesus says, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so the pressure on Jesus at this point as he's going back towards Jerusalem, the pressure is, is mounting around him. It's continued to increase. People are assuming that, that as Jesus approached Jerusalem for the holiday season, that he would be coming in and doing something catalytic. They expected that he would come in and he would finally be the rebellious king who would overthrow the Romans and come out from, from under their thumb and, and fix everything. And so, like many people even of our day now, even in the church, uh, the Israelites had identified Rome as the problem. They identified the problem as something out there that needed to be dealt with. And they're waiting for the Messiah to come and do it. They're waiting for Jesus, in this case, to come and do it. So the pressure's mounting on him to be this, but meanwhile, the political and the religious pressure on the outside is starting to increase as well. The Pharisees and the priests and the Sadducees are getting more and more hostile towards Jesus. If you remember, after the resurrection of Lazarus, they hold this secret meeting where they plot against Jesus to take his life because all these people are starting to follow this upstart Jesus character from Nazareth. So the people want Jesus to be king. The Pharisees are trying to squash him. And so I spoke about it a few weeks ago that that when, when Jesus entered Jerusalem after raising Lazarus from the dead, it was an incredible scene. Uh, it's called the trial, triumphal entry on many of your calendars probably in, in, in liturgy. Um, as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem and the temple for the week of festivities surrounding this, this high holy holiday of Passover, he was followed by this huge crowd. Remember, they, they put him on a donkey, which if anybody just looked out the window outside, a literal donkey just rode by with a fake Jesus on it, and the Moravian church was following them behind him. It's pretty cool. But this is this crowd. This scene is following Jesus into Jerusalem. And he comes in on this donkey, which is ironic, because meanwhile, on the other side of the, the Jerusalem, uh, on the other side of the city, the Romans are coming in on a, on a horse. They're coming in as warriors. And here Jesus is coming in as a servant on a donkey. People are taking off their outer garments and their cloaks and they're throwing them on the ground and they're worshiping him. They're, they're ripping palm branches down and they're waving them at, them at him and throwing them on the ground and celebrating and, and kind of taking a posture of submission towards this, this king. They're saying, Hosanna, save us, Jesus. They're calling him the Messiah. He's riding in like a savior who would bring about, they're hoping, a regime change. And only a pun in, little pun intended, they, they want to see Israel made great again, right? Like this is what they're waiting for, that the outside nation to be done away with and be brought back to their glory days. And I was thinking, um, I don't know if any of you are baseball fans. I try not to use too many sports analogies to bore some of you who aren't, but if you've been paying attention to the news or into baseball, you know that uh, the Phillies over the last couple years, uh, well, about 10 years ago, they won the World Series 
they're at the top, everything's great, and then there was just this steady decline over the last 10 years while they've been waiting to rebuild and waiting for things to happen. And, and there was a rumor in the last couple of years that they might get one of these two superstars who was coming up for free agency. They didn't know if they were going to get Manny Machado or Bryce Harper. And they're waiting and waiting for this Messiah-type figure to come. And they end up signing Bryce Harper, uh, who, if you remember, was on Sports Illustrated at 16, called The Chosen One, I think it was. It was that, like, there's this Messiah-like mentality around Bryce Harper. He's going to come in, and he's going to save the Phillies. He's going to restore the Phillies to their greatness again, which I'm hoping that he does. But all that to say, that's... That's what's happening at this point is there's this groundswell of energy towards this Messiah-type figure, Jesus, who's coming into the city, who's going to make everything right again. But if you know the story of the last couple of days of Jesus' life, you know that it doesn't quite end like that, right? You know that, that the, there's this betrayal that happens, this abandonment by the disciples. The once praising crowds now turn into a crowd that's cheering for his execution, and, and a Passover that was supposed to end in hope ends up in confusion and doubt and fear. So when Jesus reaches Jerusalem, what we can gather from the gospel accounts of Jesus' life is that he spends his daylight hours in the temple area. Okay, so there's all this holy holiday uh, stuff going on. There's all these festivities, and Jesus and his disciples spend time there during the daylight hours, uh, and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. He keeps getting into these verbal sparring matches with the other religious leaders um, and they, because they're, they're trying to trick him into some kind of uh, trap where they can then say, aha, see, he's a, he's a blasphemer, he's a heretic, and they want to throw him in jail and kill him. And so he's getting into all these verbal matches. So that's happening during the day, but then during the evening hours, we see that Jesus and his disciples would retreat back down the hillside from Jerusalem. Okay, so Jerusalem sits up on this high hill. They would retreat back down the, the hillside, and they would cross over a little valley, go over a little hill called the Mount of Olives, and then they would go into uh, the town of Bethany. And so that, that valley there that they would go through is called the Kidron Valley, which if you study the Old Testament, you know, this is where David ran from his son Absalom, had to cross the valley. And we see that Jesus is daily going up to the temple, and he's coming back down, crossing over the Mount of Olives into Bethany, where he is going and staying with his friends, Mary and Martha, and Lazarus. Probably somewhere along the way, he would stop in the Mount, of, uh, the Mount of Olives in the grove there, and he would talk to his disciples, and they would have dinner there, and the next day, they would go back into Jerusalem and do it all over again. So on the day that the Passover celebration was supposed to begin, Jesus and his disciples are back in Jerusalem. They've left Bethany. They go back into the big city to make preparations to celebrate the Passover. Now, this is what you need to know. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are two different distinct holidays in the Jewish calendar, but they're back-to-back. Passover happens one day, then the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread happens, but in history, they're just kind of known as the Passover, or they're known as the Feast. So you see, they kind of get linked together as these two major holidays, but they're very symbolic holidays. The Passover is, is the remembering of God freeing the people from Egypt. Hundreds of years earlier, the Passover happens and the Israelites are freed from being under the thumb of the Egyptians, but they have to leave in a hasty manner. They've got to get out quick, so they they leave without their bread having time to rise, right? So they leave with this unleavened bread that they go out into the desert with, and so it's called the, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
So all these people are coming into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this. The city's bursting with people because it's a pilgrimage-type festival. So as the first day of the festival is beginning, Jesus sends Peter and John. He gives them these, this very vivid description of go to this house. You're going to find this type of thing set up. Go find this house for us. Set it up for the Passover celebration. So they're like, okay. They wander into the city. They find this guy carrying a jug of water that Jesus told them about. He leads them to a house, and it's set up. And they go, and they start setting up the Passover celebration. And they get a lot, there's lots of ingredients that are needed for the Passover meal, these bitter herbs and eggs and things like this. And they had to go and they had to set up a party waiting for Jesus and the other disciples to arrive there. So the Passover feast consisted of the father of the family or the religious leader or like the most learned one, the teacher of the group to, to recount the story of Israel from hundreds of years earlier, going all the way back to the patriarchs, recounting the story of their slavery and their being set free from Egypt in the Exodus. And, 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 and there's this role of, of story and like physical things that they have to do. They have to get up and move around. They have to talk. There's, there's cups of wine. There's food they eat. There's pillows they rest on. It's all symbolic of God's exodus for the people. God uses liturgy like that to kind of train these things into us, which in the evangelical Western church, sometimes we're like, oh, liturgy, that sounds like, uh, I don't know, I don't know if I like that, but actually it's good for our spirits to be part of these physical activities sometimes. Um, My wife's family comes uh, from a place of doing lots of family traditions, and whenever we get together, inevitably with my wife and her sisters and, and her parents, Somebody breaks out some kind of um, book of pictures, which for those of you who don't know, pictures actually used to be printed uh, on paper and you would keep them in a book where you could look through them as opposed to a digital device. Okay, that's a little bit of a joke for the young people. Okay, so there's these, these books that we look through of pictures of remembering when the kids were young and remembering these stories. And we tell the same stories over and over again about remember that time that grandpa did that funny thing. Remember that time that Uncle Tim said that hilarious thing. At Thanksgiving, we, we make, um, like after the Thanksgiving meal, we make these sugar cookies that we ice and then we put in the freezer and we keep until Christmas Eve and we break them back. There's all these traditions, right? Like there's these things we do just to remember where her family has come from, how God has been faithful to them through hard times and through good. That's a little bit of what's happening in this Passover meal is these traditions, these storytelling to remember where they have come from, particularly the Exodus. And as a part of the, the Passover meal, they would eat these special foods. Uh, they, they would take these bitter herbs, think of like a horseradish, and they would take these bitter herbs and they would dip them in salt water. And they would eat it and it would remind them of the bitter tears that they had cried for the hundreds of years that their ancestors were in Egypt. They would eat this unleavened bread because it didn't have time to rise. So they would remember the, the running out into the desert to get away from Pharaoh. There were, there were actually four cups of wine that are consumed. So if you, if it, I don't know that they were all consumed by one person, but there was definitely a sharing of the, the four cups of wine, which if you read the gospel accounts, you're like, if you look at it, you'll see that they're actually talking about different cups of wine, particularly Luke. There's an order to what he's talking about there. But they're celebrating God's promises to the Israelites through these four different cups that they drink and pour out in special ways. There's this large meal that they would eat in the middle of the Passover celebration, this huge feast where it was really symbolic of the fact that they'd been set free and now they could indulge a little bit and to sit back and relax rather than being up walking and making bricks all the time. They could now sit and eat a full meal. 
Tradition was that the youngest child would sit next to the leader, even lean against the leader, which if you read the gospel accounts, you see that that's John. This is how we believe that John is the youngest apostle because he's seated right to Jesus' side and actually leans against him at one point to talk to him. So as John recalls the events of the Passover meal, he records in chapter 13 of his narrative that, that Jesus knew that his time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. He says, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. He showed them his love to the last. And I believe that what John is writing there, he says he showed them the full extent of his love was not just about the Passover meal, not just about the foot washing we're going to talk about, but actually the last days of Jesus' life, his full love being shown all the way through the crucifixion. So during the Passover celebration, there's this time just before the full meal that the participants are required to wash their hands again. There's this cleansing that needs to happen before they take on this full meal. And I believe that it was at this juncture is when Jesus rises from the seated position and and he, he takes off his outer garments. They're each given a towel. He takes his towel and he wraps it around his waist and he pours water into this basin and he begins one by one washing the feet of the disciples, not just their hands, but washing their feet. Listen to what John says. John says that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So in light of this, he gets up from the, from the meal and starts washing their feet. Do you hear that? Jesus knew. He knew the power that he had. So he in turn washes their feet. He knew he had come from God and he's going back to God. So he gets up from the table to wash their feet. It's fascinating to me. God showing the full extent of his love towards his own by serving them in a slave-like way. Jesus, the humble servant, nearly naked, bowing down, honoring and serving these men. Like, can you imagine your boss doing this? Can you imagine your CEO doing this? Can you imagine your teacher doing this? Can you imagine any of our U.S. presidents, not just the current one, any of our U.S. presidents doing this kind of servitude towards the people around them. Like, our elite leaders don't open their own doors for rooms, for cars. They don't pull their own chairs out when they go to dinner. Like, let alone clean people's feet. This is a radically upside-down kingdom that Jesus is initiating. Friends, remember with me, though, what Jesus said was about to happen. These two things, that he would be glorified through what was about to happen and that Satan would be judged and kicked out, that he would be, his power would be removed by these things that were going to happen. So Jesus has all authority in the world. He made the cosmos. He speaks the stars into being. He upholds everything. He knows the hairs on your head, and he knows the thoughts in your mind. But to overcome Satan and glorify God, he becomes a servant, washing the feet of the disciples. The disciples are waiting for this rebel king to come, They're waiting for this rebel king to come who's going to throw off Rome. And instead, Jesus rebels by throwing off his outer clothing, stripping nearly naked, and washing their dirty feet. And listen, these were not the feet of great men. These were not the feet of of powerful, important men or women that deserved this kind of treatment. He was washing the feet of people he knew. Who knew all, he knew all of their garbage. 
John and James's feet, who we talked about last week, right? The bombastic sons of thunder who wanted authority. It comes up again in this meal that the disciples are still asking for authority and influence. Bold Peter with his emotional outbursts and his rage and his regular arguing with Jesus. Jesus is washing his feet. Doubting, cynical Thomas. Matthew, the the shady tax collector who'd been robbing Israel for years, and even Judas, the money-grubbing betrayer. Jesus is washing his feet. It is a fascinating and powerful picture of God, to me at least, for which words and logic cannot do justice. In it, Jesus is driving, somehow in this, he's driving the prince of the world out, showing the full extent of his love, serving with slow, gentle humility. The way of this world today is anything but this, right? Going all the way back to Cain and Abel, it's a way of violence, a way of envy, a way of power grabbing, a way of lying and cheating and selfishness, of getting what's yours. The disciples wanted, and we often want, a God that will act using those means, of just making things right quickly, using power to do it. And God will use any means he can to make things right. But here, Jesus is driving out the power of the world by becoming a servant, at the feet of those he loved, taking the way of love and kindness and service to defeat the power of this world. It's fascinating to me. So as the Passover meal continues, it was customary and a part of the celebration, Jesus takes bread and he breaks it and he distributes it to the disciples along with one of the cups of wine. The Jews would take this dry bread and they would, they would eat it, dipping it into the cup of wine. It was symbolic of God's rescue of the Israelites from Egypt all those years earlier. It was a covenant, right? This is a re-upping of the covenant that they were God's people based on what he had done all those years earlier. But this time, what does Jesus tell them? He says, do this in remembrance of not just what God has done. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his body. Then he distributed the cup and he told them to, to drink of it that it no longer represented just the blood of the Passover lamb from all those years earlier, but now it was a reminder of his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Each one of them took the bread. Each one of them took the wine. And it was at this point in the meal that the gospel writers Matthew and Mark and Luke record that Jesus revealed that one of the disciples is going to betray him, that one of the disciples is going to hand him over. So they start asking him, who, Lord? They're distraught. They're, they're scared and they're saying, who, who is it? Is it me, Lord? And Mark and, and Luke don't record anything about what is said other than the, the confusion and the guilt that all of the disciples are feeling. But John, who is leaning on Jesus, Peter tells him, ask him who he's talking about. So John leans against Jesus and says, who, who are you talking about, Lord? And Matthew and John record that Jesus seems to indicate that the one who would betray him would be Judas. Be the one who, who dips his bread into the wine with him. And I think in hindsight, they look back on it and say, yeah, it was Judas. I don't know that if they knew in that moment. I mean, think about that. If they knew in that moment that Judas was going to go out and betray Jesus over to the hands of the Pharisees, don't you think they would have done something? Like, doesn't it seem like Peter, of all people, would have been like, no. I mean, if he would argue with Jesus, I think he would argue with Judas. I don't think they fully understood what was happening in this moment. But regardless, Judas takes the bread and he runs out. And he has a meeting with the religious leaders of the day to plan out uh, how he would get Jesus into their hands. 
You see, they had already decided they wanted to kill Jesus, but they knew they couldn't do it in the middle of the celebration because the people would riot, right? These massive crowds would turn against them. And so they have to do it someplace secretively. Judas knew Jesus' plans well. He knew that every night they would leave the temple, go down the hill, cross through the Valley of Kidron, over the Mount of Olives. Maybe they would stop and pray, and then they would go into Bethany. Jesus had allowed him close enough to know what his plans were. He knew where he would be and when. So Judas leaves to betray Jesus, and as Jesus turns to his disciples and tells them, now his glorification has begun. This is bizarre to me, that now that his betrayal has begun, now God will be glorified. His betrayal has begun, so now has his glorification. It's fascinating to me. Would you let, even that, let that soak in this week? That somehow in the midst of this week, as Jesus heads towards the cross, remembering that, that his glorification is beginning through that betrayal. He tells them that he's going to be going away, and where he's going to, they can't come. He tells them they should love one another the way that he has loved them and serve one another. <clears throat> so Peter asks him where he's going. He says, Lord, where, where, where are you going? And Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't follow, but you will later, Peter. You will follow me later. Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you? I would do anything for you. I would lay down my life for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you'll betray me, you'll deny me three times before the morning. Have you ever been betrayed you ever felt the sting of that? Have you ever betrayed anyone else and know the guilt that comes along with that? Has a loved one or a spouse or a coworker ever cheated you, cheated on you, lied about you, stabbed you in the back? Has someone who's supposed to be your friend and your supporter suddenly turned and said, I don't really know him? I remember that feeling from high school, right? Maybe some of you experienced that in your adult life. It's a terrible feeling. Yet here Jesus is, washing their feet, showing those who were his own the full extent of his love, Judas who would betray him, Peter who would abandon him, the rest who would scatter, and yet he's washing their feet, serving them like a slave. This is a picture of our God, friends. John finishes this Passover narrative in chapter 18 of his gospel by saying this. At the end of the Passover, they would sing a hymn. They would pray. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Picture this scene with me now. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I don't know what happened in that moment. But like, you picture like in like Star Wars when there's suddenly that, that low bass and that rumble under the ground. Like, it's like something happens in that moment that Jesus says, I am he. And they, they draw back and they fall down 
Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. He had said earlier, I have not lost one of those you gave me, Jesus said to the Father. I've not lost any of those that you've given me. These guys stumble back at his I am statement. Again, I believe Jesus is, or John is drawing this connection to the God of the Old Testament saying, I am he. He's clearly king and authoritative, yet he humbly offers himself up rather than losing any of his disciples. He puts himself forward and says, I'm the good shepherd. It's the good shepherd laying down his life for his disciples, for the ones he loves, showing the full extent of his love. He's fully servant, fully authoritative king, yet he's offering himself for them. We know that Peter goes on from there to deny knowing Jesus three times as the trial begins. The disciples scatter and abandon Jesus. John's following at a distance trying to see what's going to happen, and Jesus is dragged and beaten all the way through his trial, all the way through the, Jew, through the Jews, through the Romans, up to the cross where God's glory is put on full display for the world to see. And in it, the powers of this world are judged and thrown out. The way of love modeled fully to the last by the servant king of Nazareth, Jesus. Friends, as we head into this week and and remembering Good Friday and Easter, Jesus did not lose his life. We need to know this. Jesus did not lose his life. He gave it away. His power was not stripped from him. He gave it up freely, Paul says. He told his disciples that no one takes his life from him, but he has the authority to take it up, to lay it down, whatever he wants, and he lays it down willingly. He willingly chose into loving you and to loving me, to loving his own, to the very end by giving up his life and taking the results of the sin and death that we deserved upon himself, taking our dirtiness away by washing us clean. Paul says in Romans 8, in one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For we are convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He loves his own even to the last, to the full extent. Paul says the life we live now, we live by faith in this Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us the crucified servant king of the Jews. I want to take a minute and just pray. The team's going to come up and get ready for communion. Would you just pray with me? Just bow your heads. Maybe just in the, in the quietness of your heart, picture Jesus as serving you by washing your feet. You thank him for that. Picture him as 
authoritative king saying, I am, and the power that comes along with that. Jesus, you are our servant somehow. That's weird to even say out loud. You are our servant. You served us in the full extent of your love by washing us and by going to the cross on our behalf. Yet you are fully king, fully God, fully authoritative. You are the good shepherd who willingly laid down your life for us. Thank you. Let us remember that this week as we head towards Good Friday and Easter. Amen. Friends, we're going to take communion in just a couple minutes. Um, but if we're honest with ourselves, we'd have to admit, if you're anything like me, we'd have to admit that we're, we're more like Peter and Judas than we'd care to think, right? That, that we deny Jesus on a regular basis. We prefer the power of this world rather than the power of loving servanthood. I think part of the confusion that the disciples felt during the Last Supper by saying, Who, who's going to do this, Lord? Who's going to do this? Was that they knew that they were all capable of this. It wasn't just Judas. They knew that they were all capable of this. They were all asking, am, am I going to betray you? And guess what? They all like Judas, dipped bread into the wine. It wasn't just Judas. They are all betrayers, all deniers, all abandoners. Friends, today we gather at the table and we do the same thing. We dip the bread in in the same way. Remember this same Jesus. We are all betrayers. We're all deniers. Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were and are still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. He died for me. He demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still living selfishly, he died for us. While we were still lusting after that woman that you shouldn't have been, he died for us. While you were still jealous of your neighbor, he died for us. When you were still lying at work or cheating at school, he died for us. When you're still thinking those things you shouldn't have been, when you're still having your full-on adult temper tantrum of rage this week, Jesus died for you. He died for me. So today we, we take the bread in remembrance of his body given up for us. We take the juice in remembrance of his blood poured out for the forgiveness of all of those sins that have happened, that are happening now, and will happen for the rest of our days. Let us celebrate that gospel today, that, that the servant king has overcome the powers of this world and given us a new life now and forever. We're going to play some music in the background I ask you to take a moment and contemplate communion, contemplate the bread, Jesus' body, the juice, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and when you're ready, feel free to go back and take communion. There's kind of two sides there. There is a gluten-free option there for those of you who might need that. Um, and uh, come back to your seats, sit down, contemplate some more, and then we're going to sing a, a new song together as well. That's sort of the kingship of Jesus. All right, so they're going to play quietly, and then we're going to take communion. So feel free to Take it when you're ready, and if nobody's willing to go first, I will head back there in just a minute. 
So this week, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus was finishing the course he had come to run of throwing out the powers of this world, challenging the enemy of God, and glorifying God. And they nailed him to a cross for it, where he died, was laid in a tomb, and would have been nothing but a blip on the radar in Roman history if it weren't for what happened three days later. That the disciples, nay, the women disciples, let the record show, the first apostles were women, go to the tomb and they find Jesus empty and they come back and proclaim to the scared disciples, he's alive, he's alive. The powers of this world had been thrown out, that God had been glorified, and now Jesus is the king of all kings, that he is the powerful one, yet the one who serves us through his death, through his continual washing of our spirits. And Paul says that the spirit that raised him from the dead now lives in all of us who call him Lord, giving us the power of God over corruption, over brokenness. It's an incredible thing. My prayer is that you would go from this place this week, headed towards Good Friday, headed towards Easter, remembering our servant King, Jesus of Nazareth. I pray that over you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you, church.